Hey everyone ever, and welcome to 20th Century Popcast, the show where we try to understand the present while living in the past. Uh, my name is Tim Blevins, and my co-host Bob is on a trip with his family, and I was about to make a National Lampoon's Vacation reference uh, there. I didn't, but um, I'm sure there could have been a segue there to do so if uh, the episode was even about that. I think I'm like you. I think, um, I think I miss Bob already, but you're here. I'm here. He's not. So uh, instead, fortunately, we, we've got a special guest. Uh, Kevin Smokler is on the show. Uh, he's an author, journalist, and pop cultural critic uh, whose book, Brat Pack America, takes a look at a certain era of movies, uh, a certain kind of movie, uh, that being the teen movies of the 1980s. Now, those films had an obviously seismic impact on my life, uh, his life, probably your life. And when I think teen movies in the 80s, my mind goes immediately to a topic we haven't really discussed on, on the show, film writer and director John Hughes. Um, he's the creative force behind The Breakfast Club, Some Kind of Wonderful, uh, Pretty in Pink, uh, Richie Rich. Uh, so as intended, this episode was originally going to be about John Hughes, uh, specifically Some Kind of Wonderful, as that's Kevin's favorite Hughes film. But as we got talking, well, we got to actually talking. So what follows is that conversation. It circles around some things I've been trying to deal with myself on this, mainly the more possessive side of nostalgia and how I define myself by it. And Kevin's got some pretty stellar insight into what my 80s obsession might actually be all about. Um, it's actually a lot of what his book's about, and, and so I'll link to that in the show notes. But but first, first let's cue up some unlicensed uh, transitional music and present my conversation with popular cultureologist Kevin Smokler. That was a made-up word. I was the furthest thing from um, a guy who could skateboard and had a pretty girlfriend and a band and like a weird scientist as a as a best uh, as a best friend. I wasn't even close to that. So um, I definitely wanted to be Marty McFly. And you know, when Back to the Future came out, I was twelve and Marty McFly was seventeen. So so there was he he would probably have been like a kid who babysat for me and my brothers. So. But it's interesting um, at 12, I, you could see yourself as him, right? Like, I don't, did that age difference hit you at 12? Did you think he's older than me? Or do you think, I, can you put yourself in the movie at 12 watching Back to the Future? I, yeah, I think so. I mean, I had older cousins and I, you know, and I went to, and I grew up in a university town. So there were, there were kids around who were definitely older than me, but who I would not, who I would have not viewed as adults. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think, I think. Most definitely, I, I, I was able to envision, you know, being a young adult five or six years after where I was. Because Back to the Future, um, from reading your book, um, and again, your book, you, you're visiting and looking at locations. That's part of the book, looking at locations that these movies took place in. Back to the Future was kind of key to that, wasn't it? Key to inspiring the book? Am I remembering that properly? I yeah, yeah. I um, 
the 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 first time I ever I ever became cognizant of movies as places were filmed uh, that were filmed in the real world was because of Back to the Future, and it was because a a friend at the age of twelve took me to see Doc Brown's house, which is an actual historic home in Pasadena, and um, and I had no idea that like like the place where Doc Brown had you know stormed down the lawn and said, "So tell me, future boy, who's president in 1985?" Like I had no idea like that was an actual place you could go and just visit someday. I thought it was a studio lot, you know, behind a gate or something like that. And I needed a special pass and, um, or I needed to go on a tour. I I didn't realize you could just drop by. Um, so that was, that was the first time I realized sort of the power of places where movies are filmed in the real world. And, um, and, uh, and so that was really, that, that, that's the story that opens the book. And then it surprisingly, it kind of ends with back to the future too, as well, because, um, <laughs> back to the future part as well. Yeah. Yes. Um, because I, in, in 2015 for the 30th anniversary of the movie, I managed to get to see it at radio city music hall with a live orchestra and sitting next to my father, which was kind of a perfect movie to see with your dad. Um, and, uh, so that was, that was, that was pretty, that was pretty significant to me too. And, and, and I guess the prevailing metaphor in, in the book is that we, is that, um, there's a DeLorean that can take us through time to these, to these movies. And, 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 you know, ideally there is room enough room in it for all of us. So, but it's the analogy or analogy you're using of time travel is still making it a travel, like a travel back. Like you can go back to these things, return to these things. Like the whole thing with traveling to the past that you're coming there with, with who you are in the present going to the past. I'm just curious. Cause like the more I think about like John Hughes was a name that I thought meant just to jump to that for one minute. And yeah. Right back, yeah. back to the future was, was a name that meant a lot to me growing up to films of John Hughes. He understands mm-hmm. me. I don't know if I understood how you're saying as he's a filmmaker. I just thought these characters are me, but truthfully, mm-hmm. a lot of his movies, pretty in pink, some kind of wonderful. I didn't see those until college. Like the ones mm, I grew up with were, were like weird science and then the breakfast club is the ones that were shown on TV more, I think too, as part of it. Mm. But this connection to them, this, you know, thinking that this is me, this represents me through the characters, through the locations, through where they were. When I look at it now, I'm like, that seems manufactured. Like that seems the, you know, the opposite, like you're saying, like you thought all movies were built on a set. I thought all movies were built, were, were filmed in real places, they're living and breathing. There was no, I mean, I'm sure I knew there was a distinction between mm. Molly Ringwald and the characters she was playing, but I just, it all, I thought was so real. So I hung myself or hung these things on myself and said, this is my life, this is my life. But it, it all comes in retrospect. It is a bit of time traveling. The impact Breakfast Club has on me now, I have a hard time trying to picture what, picture the impact it hit 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 me as a kid because in the impact like you're talking about marty mcfly like i can't necessarily see now how that would have hit me because those weren't my lives they were escapism they were fantasy in a way like breakfast club Mm -hmm. in some ways is a fantasy to me because that's not my high school that's not the cliques i was in and yet I guess I'm just wondering, you know, did I identify with them or did I just work so hard to find a way into them like a costume? Like Back to the Future spoke to you as as a kid. What mm-hmm. what other teen like were there teen movies that when you were that were of your age that you're like this is my life or this is where I'm at or does that come later in life? It's sort of it's it's kind of not how I view it's not my relationship to movies. Like no? I no, I, I I I've been I've been a film buff since like since 
since I was about six years old. Like, how does I, that work at six? How do you understand how film works at six? We had an we had an amazing movie theater in my hometown, which was Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I remember like I remember going to see The Wizard of Oz sitting in the balcony at, at the Michigan theater, and when Toto like jumps out of Mrs. Gulch's basket and runs away, I remember like leaping up on my chair and yelling, "Go, Toto! Go, Toto!" And like. Um, it was so, I mean, it was so real to me and the, and, and, and my father was a huge movie buff and I, I, I've never not been, but it's, I, I think when I was about 12 in the sixth grade, I was given a copy of one of those like fat annual collections of Roger Ebert's film criticism as a birthday present. And I realized that like, oh, for God's sakes, like movies have been around for a hundred years. And, um, you know, and, and I can, and I can go backwards and forwards and this way and that way. And I can see all movies made by someone named Francis or starring someone named Marlene and like all movies filmed in Berlin. They're all movies, like all movies that are 112 minutes and like it just around and around and around and I'll never run out. I'll never reach the end of the rainbow. And so to me, I've always viewed them in this, like in this, with this big sort of wide, um, lens, um, and that, that doesn't mean I was, I was like, I was like a film scholar in the fourth grade or something, but I never, I, I would never go, I, I never went to, to, I, I didn't go to see Footloose in the fourth grade and feel like I was, you know, the, the reason it spoke to me is because I felt like Ren McCormick. Um, the reason Footloose spoke to me was because like, I loved the music and I thought, and I thought Sarah Jessica Parker was adorable. And I was like, you know what? If anybody ever tells me I can't listen to rock and roll, I'm just going to like get my friends together and throw a dance in the outskirts of town in a barn. Like there was a rebellion <laughs> to it that I really liked. So there was a and, connection like, the kids... still. There's a connection yeah, to yeah, that. Yeah, but it was, it, I, but that was, it was far from the only thing that I liked about it. To me, it was always like, to me, it was, it was always like, a movie I like is it was a Sunday with like twelve flavors in it instead of just you know you know chocolate. Um, was going to the theater key for you, um, or because I mean most of eighties movies for me for the most part I experienced and it's actually it's the design of your book which I do kind of like, um, which I, I do like the design of it's like videotapes is how is yeah. why maybe the eighties resonates more for me than the nineties or seventies because it was renting yeah. movies constantly. But did you like? Like when I think of all these iconic 80 movies, there's very few I actually saw in the theater. Was going to the theater an important experience for you? Again, coming from the film angle? angle? Uh, definitely. But like I, I didn't think it was until until I realized that like movie theaters were becoming really kind of – were becoming like as charming as airport lounges. Like we're becoming super like soulless concrete boxes Oh, see, I wasn't sure of your stance on airport lounges there for a minute, but I guess yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, uh, it's it's a defining part of my personality. But like, um, no, I mean, when 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 it became like when it became no f when I started caring about aesthetics, you know, when I was like eighteen, and like, and it became no fun to go to the movies anymore. Then I'm like, well, I'd rather I'd rather like go to the video store, which is which is you know kind of dark and dirty and filled with people like me who like movies, where I can see where I can I can pat myself on the back for knowing that you. You know, the conversation is in the Francis Ford Coppola section and bullshit like that. Like, <laughs> I was lucky to live in towns that had really kind of unique video stores. And so I was never, I was never sort of co, I was never stuck only shopping at Blockbuster. <laughs> um, but I, and, but, you know, then I, I also, you know, I also, right around that time, I think it was near the end of college, you know, um, 
it was really it was really the Barry Levinson movie Avalon that that you know came out in the in the mid 90s and happened to be filmed in Baltimore where I went to college which featured you know a bunch of scenes at the Senator Theater which at the time still existed and I had so much fun going to the Senator and like um, and seeing like seeing a 70 millimeter restored print of my fair lady you know on the big screen um, which was like which was like stepping into a Renoir painting and like um, and uh, you know that that Th- th- those kind of experiences, you know, grabbed hold of me later on. But I, no, I, I, I was lucky to to um, in in my early film life to have access to both great movie theaters and great video stores. But it was it wasn't just movies of the eighties. Like something as a kid in the eighties, I pretty much, with the exception of maybe Star Wars and for some reason Logan's Run, everything I watched was of the 80s, and anything before the 80s was mm. too old for me. I mean, that's not entirely true, because I watched Wizard of Oz and, 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 and Disney movies. Does the, for you, was were, were movies, movies span time? It wasn't just, you weren't just, it had to be this decade, it had to be now. You didn't care when the movies were coming out, like, right? You just had a love for film? That's different from, I think, what I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that I would. I wouldn't say that I was taking myself to you know video update in 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 Ann Arbor and renting and renting you know old Audrey Hepburn movies or something like that because I, I was pretty unaware of that stuff until I mean I, I knew there were old movies out there but I I figured I'd just get to them in due time when I was done with the stuff that I was familiar with. It was really like studying, it was more studying film in college that I became aware of the sort of, the sort of continuous, uh, um, uh, uh, family tree from, from early film all the way, or early film all the way up until today that I became, that I became more interested in that kind of thing. Well, but do you think like eighties film, and I say this cause you're, how I came to your book and got into your book, it's looking at eighties movies am I over romanticizing this idea of an eighties movie? Like, is that really an era? Like you said, you know, you're talking about there already was nostalgia in the early nineties for the eighties, but is that just cause we lived through that? That was the first full decade. Like, is there something in here? Cause I can't think of what nineties movies are. I can think of clueless and I can think of the year we had two yeah. meteors hitting earth movies. Well, one was a comment, yeah. <laughs> but I don't, nothing um, yeah. speaks to no, me I'm, like the nineties for music. It does, but not for movies. Yeah, I, I would say music was definitely definitely defined that decade more than film did. However, like if you take a look at sort of what is what what we consider just what we consider part of the lingua franca of movies today and where it began, like like what are the genres that are an '80s movie? Uh, you're probably talking about you're, you're talking about the the slasher film, um, and the um, and the summer action blockbuster. Uh, which I guess you could argue started with Jaws, but really, but really, kind of came to full flower um, in the eighties, uh, and the teen movie, um, and those are and those are three those are three genres that are invented at a certain time, which we now just consider which we now just consider fingers on the hand of American movie making. Um, I don't think the same can be said for the 1990s, but there are certainly there are certainly movies that kind of define that period in American history. Um, there, there is the, there was this weird little boomlet of movies that, that really reached its apex thanks to the Matrix, you know, in the late 90s that were that were a response to the Internet and Y2K, which were all you know the world is not what it, your reality is not what it seems, and that was the Matrix, the game. Um, 
uh, I, I'm sure there's a couple of other examples that I'm... I, I can name Johnny Mnemonic and Strange Days, but I'm not proud of that. Yeah, and then there were movies at the beginning of that decade that were all kind of response to the the slump, in the, the early 90s slump in the economy. And those were movies all about young people who like had minimum wage jobs. You know, and that was that was slacker, and and then you get and then you get kind of the even though the even though the, the generation of Sundance filmmakers kind of begins in the mid '80s with with Spike Lee and Michael Moore and people like that, the idea of independent film as a brand, the same way independent music became a brand in the '90s, becomes a thing in the 1990s. Um, so yeah, I, I I wouldn't say those are those are those are whole genres per se, but there there are definitely film movements that define that period of time, and and, and I, I got to give credit to my best friend for this. The '90s is a decade in film kind of ends with the Blair Witch Project because that's that's a movie that that's a movie that sort of self consciously acknowledges its DIYness, its its cheapness. Um, and from that, we get the beginning of sort of uh, uh, we get the beginning of of do it yourself culture, which is you know which is we know is in terms of filmmaking is kind of you know obviously there were examples of it before that, but as a as a as a not radically exceptional way to make movies is really a twenty first century invention. Sure, um, I mean I think and I think that's the same thing with with radio becoming podcasts, with TV becoming YouTube's. I think there's an accessibility that Blair Witch. It's weird. I would almost trace it back to Clerks, but Clerks doesn't work the same way, where it's just like, it feels like, oh, I could do that. Like, there's a demystification. It doesn't have to be big budget. It doesn't have to be a million dollars. And you can do something very powerful. And I think that that's interesting to, to, to think what closes out the 90s. If it is Blair Witch, that, that's interesting because Blair Witch was the first time I was pretty much aware of the internet promoting something and you could not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, maybe that's the big difference because Clerks still requires Harvey Weinstein to discover it. Um, and, and Blair, Witch, you know, Blair, Witch is sort of part and parcel. It's, it creates its own mythology, like, uh, and that's what made that movie a hit. Um, could that be, is that movie still a hit? Like, do people watch that still? I feel like a big part of it was that period of time, like that. Yeah. And, and I, and I think, I think to its disadvantage is the fact that the filmmakers ne- were never able to, to they, they, for whatever reason, Blair Witch was not the beginning of a career the way Clerks was the beginning of a career for Kevin Smith. Um, but the movie itself suffers because of that, or suffer? I guess it doesn't find. I, I think no one goes the, I think the continuing it. reputation of the movie suffers for that. I mean, Clerks is a Clerks is a super fun movie, but do we have? Do we? pay attention to clerks 25 years later without the ubiquitous public persona of Kevin Smith. I don't think we do like, yeah, I don't know because the other side of that, I mean, I grew, I was of the age to see clerks where it hit me and I don't follow Kevin Smith anymore. So yeah, I don't know if new people are finding it, but I never know that that's the thing that jumped back a decade into the eighties. I'm always surprised that kids still find pretty in pink. I feel like that, might be the one of all the John Hughes films that people play. I'm just like, what is relevant to kids in this now? And I guess there's always themes there. But John Hughes, I mean, John Hughes's work as a writer for teens was very confined. This idea that he went on to do Home Alone, Richie Rich, and a series of kids movies. So maybe that's why they, they follow his career backwards. But yeah, I don't know why, why does the name John Hughes carry on? I can't even think of the Blair Witch the two of them now. I wish I could because their name yeah. doesn't resonate. Why does the John Hughes name carry on when to really think about it, the last John Hughes movie I watched 
would have been whenever Curly Sue came out. That's the last one I saw when it was yeah. new. So that's, you know, however yeah, many 91, years on. 91, 92. Wow. Yeah, the, the the, very, the, Jim Belushi should be very, very thankful. That's very nice of him. <laughs> the, the, the too simple answer to that is parents showing those movies to their kids and saying this was formative for me, which I think is interesting because like my parents, my parents were, were as crazy about pop culture as I am, but they never, they never extended that gesture. You know, like it was, they never sat me down in front of their stack of Beatle records and says, you had said, you have to listen to this. I kind of found them on my own. And, Do you think you would have listened if self- they had played it? Or is it better you found that on your own? Maybe. Like they I don't know. I was pretty, I was pretty self-motivated when it yeah. came to, to that stuff. Um, but the, uh, so that's the too simple answer. Beyond that, it's um, I think it's just I, I think it's just easier to find that information now. Um, we didn't have the IMDb, you know. We didn't. Um, I, I I I had to find out by accident that that the same person made the Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Sixteen Candles. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, th- that's a really good question because it, like they're. There, there are more than enough John, fans of John Hughes movies who were not alive when those movies came out. Sure, which probably um, happens with other pop culture. I'm not thinking of. I mean, most you know, Beatles. Everyone's a Beatles fan. They weren't alive, but I don't know for something like. And maybe it's because there's the timelessness. Because I related so hard to those movies, but to strip it back, those movies don't represent me. Those worlds don't represent me. I'm finding something. Yeah. Maybe they're fairy tale which is the dumb way of, of saying it but there's something to it i just wonder how does that resonate where something where i always hear about rebel without a cause i you know i heard about that my whole life as being this this struggling i don't know if he's a teenager in that but it was like mm. this angsty kid movie i finally saw that when i was 25 and i was like uh i like mr howell in it but you know I, I didn't know what to make of it it didn't hit me yeah and but people talk about it, but these movies people do gravitate towards them they do gravitate towards I mean, do you think that's a lot of 80s culture in general, the music, the movies? Why do these things ripple more than 90s culture? We haven't had the big, you know, you, you kind of mentioned it. We've had multiple 80s resurgences. Are we just finally getting to a 90s resurgence? Is that really even happening? The simple answer is yes. And and, and the answer I usually give to this question oh, is God, one that Oh, God, I ask the question that people group, always, I'm so sorry. No, oh. no, it's, 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 a, it's totally, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. I'm just going through um, your Twitter and, feed and, and asking you things I know you have answers to right now. You can hash. <laughs> no, I mean, so there is, there is a very common narrative associated with the 1990s that a lot of people feel, and, and I often disparage, but I shouldn't because a lot of people experienced it and, and therefore, and, and they're not all wrong just because I didn't, I didn't experience it, which is that, which is that like uh, the 1980s was a, was a shallow bankrupt decade that, that, that favored, you know, that favored jocks and cheerleaders. And then the nineties came along and the misfits won. And since I was a misfit, the nineties was my decade and it was finally my turn to shine. Uh, that was not, I was certainly a misfit, but that was not my narrative at all because, because Nirvana scared the hell out of me. Um, and, and Nirvana scared the hell out of me in the human league, the human league didn't. So, um, so that, um, so when I, when I say that, when I, when I say, when I give this answer, those people hate this answer. But the answer is that for as shallow and overblown and vapid as the eighties was, the, the, the eighties from a pop culture point of view was fun and it was designed to entertain you. And it was designed to make you, it was designed to flatter you as the audience member. Whereas 
what we typically think of as 90s entertainment was designed to make fun of you for caring too much. Um, the the prevail the there there I, I remember I remember being you know living in Austin in graduate school in the late 90s um, and being so excited that I was in the live music capital of the world and um, and the things you'd read about in the Austin Chronicle the alternative weekly newspaper at the time was why you'd read, they'd have this article at least three times a year why does nobody clap at shows in Austin. Um, and I don't think that was a local problem. I think it was because there was a whole decade where it was uncool to show enthusiasm. Um, and I, I am an extroverted person. I am all about showing enthusiasm. So, um, if you want to ask me why, why nineties, uh, why, why we don't, why the nineties doesn't carry on into, into the future the way the 80s does well it's the same way the 20s has an enduring has endured in a way that the third that the 30s has not to me the music of the 80s the movies of the 80s i don't think it's just because those are my formative years those have all stained me in a way that i feel like second only to what i wish i'd lived through although i would never have survived it which was new york in 1978 i would have loved to have been there for that and i would have oh, been yeah. torn up the pieces and crying in my room yeah. like tom hanks and big but uh oh me too i i would have been the i would have been the dead body miguel pinero stepped over on his way to you know on his way to uh to the new yorican cafe at least you would have been in that reference that's great <laughs> but like that book you've, you've read the legs mcneil and jillian welch book out uh, of please please kill me book yeah yeah oral, yeah that to me i'm just whenever i read that i'm like god i'm so in love with this but yes i wouldn't have survived it but just the feel and the look of that second i guess to that then is just i want to be in desperately seeking susan i want to be in that long coat in the coffee shop what you know what everything i was exposed to you know like coffee shops and cities and guitars and pink hair all of that coming out of the 80s that that's just to me that's art that's walking living art and the, and it's always looked at as disposable or capitalistic but i just that is more artistic to me than stuff that i've studied than periods i've looked to just because i don't know there's something very sci-fi about it and also because i lived through it yeah the example you picked is a really interesting one because desperately seeking susan contains the dying embers of downtown new york 70s culture that's no um, that's a good point actually yeah and that's and because that's where madonna came from and i think like i'm not going to speak for you but I, but i think some of that is the peer some of that is the sort of signifiers of that period of time the long coats and the guitars and that sort of thing and some of it is just like being young and feeling like a giant american city is open to you mm -hmm. um i you know i was i didn't realize that was a thing you were supposed to do you know i finished <laughs> i finished college i had two more years working at a video store in baltimore then i went to graduate school i was in austin for the the beginning of the sort of internet fueled boom which was an interesting time to be in austin um even though i i, I sort of didn't know how to participate in it but the idea that that sort of devil wears prada idea of being like 22 and poor and it's just you and your friends in the big mean city and but it's all open to you you know just outside the door of your crappy apartment like i didn't i didn't know that was a thing i was supposed to do until it was too late so oh, see, I, I feel like it was romanticized in the 80s things looked i don't even think it was dirty but just there was something about that like pretty in pink for example just that that 
grotesque dress she builds is so beautiful. <laughs> Doing that with yeah. your hands, this physical holding on to thing. And, and again, that's something that can happen in other movies. That feels very 80s and looks very 80s to me. You know, you mentioned Madonna. Mm. Madonna fascinated me from the very first time I heard Material Girl. Yeah. Not because I knew what she looked like, because I knew what she sounded like. That song has always sounded like robots marching behind this torch singer. It just sounds like science fiction almost to me. And I love Which it. song are you talking about? A Material Girl. The first yeah. time I heard that in 1984 on the radio and the very next day I was telling my best friend Nate and he's like yeah it's almost like he was like I heard it too as if it only played once but we caught this transmission of the song (laughs) so that made me something about that just sounded so it was the future but then I saw oh she's in the city all that mixing of culture this is way off topic I just that song is just one of the most hearing that song similar to to to, um, to seeing the video for When Doves Cry I mean these are formative Mm -hmm. moments from the 80s that just hit me at a time, and maybe this is what it is. Maybe these things resonate because I was too young to have a concept of how these fall on the bigger thing. It's not like I was thinking, here I am at seven on the big car trip. You know, like it yeah. just <laughs> washed over me. Whereas in the 90s, things that, because things did hit me in the 90s, things did move me in the 90s, but I knew that that's what they were supposed to do. I was supposed to find out who Neil Gaiman is and read his work because that's supposed to yeah. move me. Where it was all new with 80s culture, to me, anyways. But there's an interesting sort of retrospective point of view to that, which I, I I remember someone saying about the Ramones one time. It's like it was like only after the fact that we realized that the Ramones were a lot smarter than we thought they were. <laughs> um, that it wasn't just it wasn't just a bunch of you know a bunch of pug ugly Jewish kids from Queens playing playing two minute loud songs. That there was something. That there's something deeply rooted in the history of American popular music to the Ramones. You know, the Ramones are dressed as 50s juvenile delinquents, even though that's their parents' age of era. And the music they were playing was essentially girl group and was essentially girl group and brill building music, you know, as filtered by the Who. Um, and so, like, it was, it was, it was, it was a, it was a classic. It was, it was, it was classical in its way. Um, it was, it was so, in, it was so much paying tribute to the early history of rock and roll, but in a kind of, in a way that couldn't be more rock and roll. In a way that was bratty and sarcastic and sneering. And um, so, was it new? Yes. Was it was it new as in never had done before? Oh, not at all. It was completely rooted in in something that had been done before. And the 80s, we tend to think of as kind of hermetically sealed off from the rest of history, you know? You know, where else do big shoulder pads and hairspray and too many zippers on jackets come from other than the 80s? Well, Ferris Bueller, as I, 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 this is just me pulling directly from from my book, but but Ferris Bueller, Ferris Bueller is a classical Hollywood story. Ferris Bueller is on the town with teenagers instead of instead of sailors, like Ferris Bueller with 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 a Ferrari instead of the New York subway, and um, because John Hughes loved that shit, and, and that's part of why Ferris Bueller has endured. But why hasn't the example, because I've already blanked um, on, on the town, why doesn't that ring with people? Why isn't that ripple through time? I think, you know, because I think you do have to acknowledge the sort of the sort of irrevocable cleaves that happened in the history of any medium. It is very hard to to, to, to listen to Elvis Presley and not say before the Beatles. Um, 
it is very hard to listen. It is very hard. It, it is very hard to watch a John Hughes movie and say and not say this happened before American popular culture became black culture. Some of those things, some of those are just are, are just canyons you cannot go back across. Because I hadn't thought about it culturally, like in terms of white culture and black culture. I've have thought that a lot of the eighties movies. We're talking now with, with with gender politics and with gender politics and with the the, the changing of you know male roles and, and and male influence that is making a lot of those movies harder to watch. So there is some change there. Maybe these movies are going to get filtered out. Yeah. Maybe that is going to slowly shake a few loose. And, and and some of this is some of this is beyond sort of our notions of important <laughs> or not important. Some of it is some of this is just what kind of access will people have? Like how if, if you can if you're 12 and you're the world's biggest Gene Kelly fan, how do you see Gene Kelly movies? Maybe pop, maybe culture has never lasted as long as it has been because the ability to record Gene Kelly is now what a hundred years old, what more, more than that. But that wasn't always there. We didn't always have visual icons. Yeah, what what we what we consider culturally important is always is always somehow defined by factors that seem less about aesthetics and more about technology and convenience. You know, it is it, it we we. Only, I mean, Shakespeare was Shakespeare was dead and buried before a word that he wrote was ever was ever printed and read by somebody. Um, Shakespeare was meant to be performed, and um, and so the, the the very act of kids, you know, every kid in America reading it in the ninth grade is a phenomenon that happens way after the life of Shakespeare. Um, so, I, I, but but without that, you know, without without cheap paperback technology, uh, we'd only know about Shakespeare if, if we were in the habit of going to the theater. So that's I, I think those those things are important. Like like it is unclear at this point how someone will develop a vocabulary in film history. Will it be from watching TCM? Will it be from owning DVDs, which are quickly becoming anachronistic? Will it be? Um, will it be from, you know, YouTube clips? I, I don't know the answer to that. You know, in, in my day, it was video stores. But but even then, th- those things were far from ubiquitous. You know, if you had a non-blockbuster video store, it probably meant you lived in a hip neighborhood in a huge city or near a college. Does this worry you? Are you worried about the future of film in that sense? I, 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 I think it's I, – I, I try not to worry about – I try not to worry about things that are undecided because – because that's a little bit about what like, do you think about it? I guess oh, well, it, a, it sounds like you sounds like you have at least thought about it. Like you you, you vocalize the statement, so it's something that, that that you 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 can envision. Maybe it's a possibility. I would say if you are someone my age or older, particularly if you have kids and you were worried about them having a film education, um, don't just show them your favorite movies from your own childhood teach them how to find their favorite movies like teach them teach them how to think of movies as something as, as you know a two, as something more than a 2 hour narcotic you take to forget about to forget about your troubles and then go on with the rest of your life but do you teach that or do you, i mean maybe film just becomes a medium like going to the movie theaters might diminish going to the movie theaters now is i'm going to spend 16 dollars to see the biggest movie cuz i can't fathom spending 16 dollars to see Noah Baumbach talk for even though I love his movies I can't afford that so does because people find things on YouTube people find things on the internet people do still find things can you teach 
someone to like a medium that's fading or are they just going to seek out like maybe something I'm trying to think like I, mean, I know there are mediums that existed before film that don't anymore I'm trying to think what they are what what is it that that we've lost there aren't many of them and and we've been talking about movies as a fading medium since at least the invention of television which is which is 70 years ago now um or the invention of television is older than that since the population since the popularization of television um so i i, I think usually is this medium dying is a is a is 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 hysteria um but and, and it gets the conversation yeah. started it, it, it's it's yeah, jumping it's, the it's gun. never it's just never it's never borne itself out yeah. like like there's never an example we can cite of that um the the real question i would ask is can you teach can you teach a basic vocabulary in the appreciation of an art form and if the answer is of course you can um you but you but you do have to have it yourself you have to be able to say if if you know you have to be able to say if the conversation is your favorite movie why is it your favorite movie what made it that way where did it where did it come along in film history what was it doing that was different what was it where did it occur in the history of the people who in the lives of the people who made it like like this is to me and, and I, i'm not saying everybody feels this way I'm, maybe i'm just saying not enough people feel this way to me uh loving loving an art form is like loving a person you know you don't you, you try and you try and know as much about them as you can and love as much about them as you can um and i i just i, I just don't believe in being passionate yet uneducated about something well, and I, I find this interesting because earlier on, and I hope this wasn't lost when we switched recording aggregates, um, you, you were talking about how early on, I think your way into film was loving film. You know, we were initially we were going to try to start by talking about John Hughes movies. And that, that really, not threw me, but surprised me. Because again, I loved, as a kid, I loved filmmaking, but it came from a different angle. It came from something first. I don't know... When I started calling it art, I think I always thought these films were art because they were the things I was going to. I grasped that concept of it. Um, the comparison, I, I think you're just making between you know loving a person, loving film. I don't know. There's something to that that's interesting to me because I don't think I have that. I don't think my relationship with these particular films, like I don't look at John Hughes in the filmic way. Like I know it's his name on all those movies, but it doesn't strike me as a directorial style, as a visual style. It's 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 something. I mean, it's the music. So it's the sounds. It's the sounds of his movies that strike me. I want to view it as, I want to be able to put John Hughes in the context of film, but I can't for some reason. It doesn't hit the same I, I, way. I get that. Like, I, would I care so much about this topic had I not lived through it? I guess that's unlikely. That's the, really? You think yeah. unlikely? Okay. I think very unlikely. You know, I, listen, I'm fascinated by post-World War II America. In fact, I, I wrote my master's thesis on it. Um, on one aspect of it. Um, so I'm fascinated by America between like, like after the birth of the atomic bomb from then until the birth of rock and roll. Um, could I have spent two years on a book about some aspect of popular culture from that time? Probably not. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe, maybe, 10 maybe maybe five ten books into the future i can i can divorce myself from a subject i'm interested in but i'm not there yet as a writer um so i i don't think i would have cared as much about this subject had i not lived through it so that diminishes the subject a little doesn't it no no, no? I, I, actually it doesn't because that said like if i wanted to write a memoir about 80s movies i would have done that and i think it would have been much less interesting um, because 
my nostalgic memories of some movies I grew up with are no more interesting than anybody else's nostalgic memories of some movies I grew up with. And I think nostalgia is an incredibly dangerous thing. Um, as much as I've, I've written a book that seems to be like just a giant cathedral to nostalgia. In fact, Brat Pack America is saying the reason we pay attention to these movies is not because they remind us of a time long ago that's gone, but because they continue to matter now. Um, so it's in fact, it's in fact a story about the da- this book is in fact a story about the dangers of nostalgia. Nostalgia is a way of, nostalgia is a way of, of, of neglecting, is, is a way of voluntarily placing your head in the sand and ignoring a, a, a simple fact of life, which is that time moves on. I mean, that is a big issue. I will be willing to admit that is a, a hassle for me is this idea of time moving on. So that's, it's just something I struggle with because, you know, I talk about this stuff every week in some form and you write about it, but it sounds like you're able to make a, a not a disconnect. You're, 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 you're telling me to, there's another way of approaching it that I don't have. I think, I think to view, to view pop culture as this is something, this is something I remember distinctly from working in video stores when, you know, when those were around, um, most people walk into a video store and view and view it divided into two sections, the new release section and the old section. And the old is everything else. Um, even if it even if it even if it is three days past being moved off the new releases wall. Um, and I just I, I think that is an incredibly myopic way to view culture, um, particularly now that we have so much easy access to it. So the idea that I'm either supposed to pay attention to, you know, you know, breathlessly pay attention to music from six minutes ago, or else, you know, be a nostalgic old white guy fuddy-duddy and only care about, you know, only care about movie music from my childhood. Those are the only choices? Like, like that seems ridiculous to me. Yeah, I don't um, think those are the only choices. I You're describing a video store, which I think is the perfect example, because my favorite place to go through the end of the 80s into the 90s was a video store because that was like a movie education. I loved going to the different sections and I loved the visual. It was like community college. Like, And again, it's great to have the access that we have. And I guess I have it on YouTube a little bit. I can't do the same thing with like Netflix. I, I have trouble scrolling through and doing the same thing where I have the video store. And then again, this is just capitalism for me now. Jesus Christ. No, yeah, I, I am not. I am not happy that I have to be subscribed to a half a dozen streaming services to replicate the experience I used to get from you know paying two twenty five for a weekend rental at a video store. I, I'm not excited about that. Um, I, I I think I guess I guess what I was what I'm trying to say is. As someone who loves culture, everything about it, and 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 does it doesn't I really haven't had a day go by since I was about twelve years old where I didn't you know watch, read, listen, attend something. Um, if that's me, I, I I've got to I've got to feel grateful for the present because um, and and what that present is is up to me to some degree. Um, but if I don't feel grateful for it, if I feel like if I feel like the present is simply a sad afterthought of what was once my golden age, you know, I may as well take a, a straight walk off a slanted roof at that point. I, I just I, I just don't see I, I don't see the point of being alive then, um, because because I don't I don't get anything but the present. Um, 
I gotta live. I gotta live right here now. I can. I can be educated and aware and appreciative of the past and anticipating and excited about the future. But really, I don't get anything but right now. And so I, I'm not going to engage in the in the act of self delusion and pretend like right now doesn't matter. Believe me, I understand the instinct to say, "Oh, the greatest period in movies, books, record, you name it, was then, and it's never been the same since." Um. In my experience, that is almost always a chauvinistic point of view. People people generally say that about a period they lived through, and so they're they're really speaking selfishly when they say that. Um, they're really it's great because they were there, um, and also uh, I just think that's like that's like. That's like walking into the ice cream shop saying, have anything you want. You'll never get sick and you'll never gain weight. And you saying, well, I only like peanut butter chocolate. So give me a tablespoon of that forever. God, I love peanut butter chocolate. So do I. But I know, for God's right? sakes, like. <laughs> I, I think it's it, it's an evolution because I still have, and I don't see myself dropping the filter of this period of culture that I love is how I view the world. It's the language I understand. It's the words I understand. It's a touch point. What I have done is I've gotten past the point of what I like is all that matters because that was exhausting. And I did that. I'm, oh, God, it's so exhausting. It is, and it was, it was briefly <laughs> fulfilling. And the sad thing with that, it's also how I met a lot of people. It was a social tool. And I can see how I could easily do that on Twitter or Facebook now too. It is a tool. I've gotten past that, but I've only gotten past that because I've gotten older. I've only gotten past that because it's exhausting. And I've only gotten past it because I no longer work and hang out in coffee shops. I've removed myself from these environments. So I don't have that anymore, but I do still have that filter. I don't think that's a bad thing. I have my fears of the present and being older in the present, but... And you weren't saying it was a bad thing. It is a selfish thing, but I, I don't. I don't think it's as damaging a selfish thing as it used to be because it, you know, I'm not walking off a roof. But to take it away, to take away those memories, and I guess this is what I'm struggling with. And you said a few things that I'm going to continue to struggle with. Clinging to these memories is a problem, but I think I prefer that problem because <laughs> I'm not sure the the other side at the moment. I don't know the other point of reference without it. Yeah, you know what? It it is a good problem, and and I I try and be I try I try and look at the problem you've just defined, and say, you know what? I, I have been given the enormous gift of getting to of getting to spend a year and a half going across, which is how long I I was on book tour, uh, going across the country and talking about talking happily about a time in life most people hated. Um, and that and that is a really good thing because because I, I, I didn't have a great adolescence and, and I, I, I when I was 25 I could very much see how it could have ruined me um, had I not somehow reconciled it and I'm not saying I'm doing that for every John Hughes fan that I meet you know at a bookstore in Denver or Tulsa or something like that but to engage in the act of taking something joyous serene comforting, um, peaceful from that period in one's life, I think is a good, is healing. And I think that's a really good thing. Um, and, and yes, people, people, 70% of the people who pick up Brat Pack America, um, say to themselves, God, this takes me down memory lane. And I'm so excited to watch these movies again and share them with my kids. And you know what? Fine. 
good, good, good. Like, like that, that, that's so much better. That's so much better than like, I picked up your book and was disappointed by it and, you know, and left it at the bus stop somewhere. Oh, um, that's and, not 30%. Uh, or, I'm or, sure the math doesn't work out there. That can't be. <laughs> no, 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 that's not 30%. But like, 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 to 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 have someone finish your book and and have a have a, a next positive action to take is is better than as an author you you are you have really you have really summited a, a, a tall peak if that has happened, um, and so I I try I try and be very grateful for that. Um, but I, I, the other part of it is I just try, I just try and be honest with, with what I was trying to say about these movies, which is, I think, I, I think the reason they're amazing is just much, much bigger than my, than my pleasant memories of them. I like that as a thought. I know I don't have it. <laughs> I don't have that thought because I'm very selfish with that. <laughs> I, and I, but <laughs> you, you didn't waste two years of your life writing about them. <laughs> I didn't waste two years of my life writing about them, but I know I really like that you use these things again as filters. I guess at the end writing it, you know, what you're anyone is exploring, there's a filter of some kind. It meant a lot to me that the filters you used and 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 the, the filters to discuss because just to hear you say, you know, about a bigger thing, like even just that title, Brat Pack America. Obviously, what gets me to the book is Brat Pack. That gets me to it. Yeah, America is yeah. not a word I like using or saying, but the fact that it's there <laughs> shapes something, and I think that is important. I think it's a sociological work that, again, uses filters. I get. <laughs> And I think that's important because I think they're capable of being that. And that's selfishly rewarding for me. But also, I just, it's, I think it's awesome that you have awesome, geez, I'm sure there's a more collegiate word than awesome. I think it's stellar that you have, you're able to use these things that can just be almost excused as, as, you know, pop, pop culture entertainment as part of your lexicon, as part of your language to get at a deeper thing. And then that's, that's, that's great. Yeah, I mean it's something everybody does and yet our inclination is to think of it is to think of it as not worthy of our time or consideration because we kind of we kind of use it to pack our brain with cotton candy or something like that. I mean, I <laughs> I mean I I I I remember, you know, I remember being 12 or something and dying for someone to tell me that how I was spending my time was not futile that, that that spending spending hours and hours at record stores and movie theaters and in front of the television and public libraries you know making lists of all of the books i wanted to read and concerts i wanted to go to in a spiral bound notebook like i was dying for someone to tell me that that was not that 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 was not futile because i wasn't i wasn't playing soccer or or you know winning science fairs i mean and and the people who did, the people who did the way they did made me feel like I wasn't alone. Like, like I, 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 I am an enormous, I, I remain to this day an enormous admirer of Casey Kasem. And, um, and I understand that like, like to, to a, a music snob, Casey Kasem was merely, was merely, you know, the, the guardian of, 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 of the tyranny of mainstream tastes. And, and I, you know, a, a divorced dad in a bad sweater, you know, saying, you know, with an, isn't this great in, inclination in his voice saying, you know, God, you should really think that men without hats are worth your time. And like, um, and that, but the truth is like, God, when, when I would turn on that countdown on Sunday mornings and Casey Kasem would say, these are the songs these are the songs that people are listening to all over America today. 
I was like, you mean it's just, it's not just me? It's not just it's just not just me sitting in this sitting in this bedroom with my spiral bound notebook and my number two Ticonderoga pencil, being like, being like, you know, and my my orange Maxell cassette tape, you know, getting ready to press record when something. Uh, it's not just me doing this silly thing. Um, it's people all over America. Like that's 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 amazing, and that's and that's you know that's I, I think I think people. People who loved these movies are are part of a of a of a generation and a culture, um, and I think the thing that's amazing is like that 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 culture is not is not a lost civilization. It's it's it it is with us still, and and, and not just the children and grandchildren of of people our age, but like. You know, I'm sorry. There's there's no Taylor Swift without John Hughes movies. There's no Tabby Jevonson without ta- John Hughes movies. There's certainly no John Green and Fault in Our Stars or anything like that. Like there is no such. I'm sorry. I, I I'm going to be bold and say there is no such thing as American popular teen entertainment without the '80s teen movie. Like, um, and so like like I, I just think I I think to. I, I, I want to give John Hughes at all their due credit, which is which is those movies are 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 with us and continue to be. And we'll talk about those movies someday, I'm sure. But no, thank you, man. No, I <laughs> thank you very much. I sorry, it was a little over the map there. I'm, but it, it was great to oh, no, that's... get into it like this because yeah, again, it's these things matter, and it's nice that you can culturally speak of them. So the book that we've been talking about off and on here, Brat Pack America, what's the best way for people to find that? Going through you directly, going through Amazon? What do you, what do you prefer? People should check that out. Whatever way you prefer to – whatever way to prefer, you prefer to shop for books, it is available at all of the usual outlets. Of course, your local independent bookstore. It is available through Amazon and Barnes & Noble, et cetera. Etc. and and via as an ebook as well. Awesome, man. And is there any way you want to promote yourself? People way to follow you, keep in touch with you, or are you fine with just them seeking out the book? Oh, uh, well, I'm I'm on Plugs Twitter, on Twitter, which is where about. I spend is where I spend most of my social media time. I'm Ouija, W E E G E E, and that's where I that's where I, I I do most of my talking about and sharing about pop culture and I and where I advertise you know the Spotify playlists I offer up to people and and uh, make recommendations and accept recommendations that sort of thing so music is your main language huh it seems like it kept coming up again that's awesome like is that kind of what you speak it's I mean it's it's super important to me but like I I god I, I think I would I think I would just like gas myself in a garage if I had to choose between music and movies and books and visual art like i god that was almost today's topic i'm really glad we stepped stepped clear of that (laughs) yeah i'm sure i'm sure i could make that hobson's choice somehow but um but i i i i think i i find i love them all equally they 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 occupy different you know points in my day and places in my life music is simply easier to pick up and put down than than the other ones just by the nature of what it is but um but a good, you know, what Goethe said, like a good day is where you is where you like have a good meal, read a good poem, and speak a few well chosen words. Like I, I feel like a good day is where you, you know, is where you see a good movie, read a few pages of a good book, listen to a great album, and you know, and speak a few well chosen <laughs> words. Well, thank you, man. Thanks for choosing some words on this. That's a horrible. Wow, I was really trying to wrap it up, and that was awful. <laughs> but prior to that, it went well. So thank you, Kevin.
So that's the show, um, everyone. That's this week's show. I want to extend a pretty big thanks to Kevin Smokler, who uh, who not only agreed to be on the show and actually provided some all the solid, thought-provoking substance you just heard. Um, he's actually a big trooper with recording the show. There was a lot of some technical difficulties with getting the recording platform to work. So, Kevin, thank you for sticking it out for what was probably about two hours. I know we lost half of what was a pretty different conversation, but I'm glad we saw the conversation that was in this episode. So thank you, Kevin. Thank you for being on the show. And listeners, if you want to do anything to support me, to support the show, to support Kevin, check out the show notes for this episode, because I'm going to put some links in that to get you to Brat Pack America. This book that if you liked some of what we were talking about, and if you love anything having to do with film in the 80s, I would really say check it out. It's available uh, for what, what you can, it's available on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, like he just said. You can download it as an ebook. You can find it at a bookstore. Just to su- su- support this book and support Kevin uh, because he's got a lot to say about these topics that matter a lot to me. So please do that. <clears throat> if you're if you're still at the keyboard after you do that and you have a few more strokes left in your fingers which is not something we'll say on another show. Um, you, you, you can support us as well. You can support 20th Century Pop by going to 20popcast.com. That's the main website that always has the most recent episode up, as well as links to all of our past episodes. So you can listen to those as well. You'll also find ways to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and other forms of what I believe are called podcatchers. If you do like the show and you do listen to it on one of those platforms, we would encourage you to, to leave a review, leave a rating give put out some words and messages out there to get people to listen to our show Uh, i'm sure there's more stuff we could do it's all on the website so check that out uh bob's still on vacation and he will be next week but i'll be back if that encourages you one way or the other encourages you one way or the other i'm suddenly having trouble talking so i'm gonna wrap this up but uh thank you for listening please come back to the show uh robert canning and you also the listener but mainly Robert Canning. <laughs>